Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, so you guys enjoying the conference so far? All right. Awesome. So for those of you that don't know, uh, I'm Michael Long. I'm the outreach pastor here at Oakland Heights. And today we're going to be talking about utilizing cost of discipleship. I know in the, in the uh, booklet it just says cost of discipleship. So we're going to be talking about utilizing it. Um, and so, but it's going to, but we're really going to talk a lot about some of the foundational principles behind cost of discipleship, kind of what it is, and uh, just looking at how churches or how we do, uh, at least at Oakland Heights, we utilize components of the cost of discipleship material. And so that's a lot of what we're going to be covering today. So forgive me, uh, I'm not used to using the clicker, so if I forget to click the slides, please say, click the slide! <laughs> okay? All right. Um, and so let's just uh, jump in and, uh, and see where it leads. Okay, so if you don't have the notes, they're right outside the door. I can grab you some if you need, to, if you need them. Um, but that's where the notes are. Hello, come on in. And so, uh, you know, cost of discipleship, it is a very simple concept, um, you know, that you can see from Scripture, I believe. Uh, I know that Jesus lets us know that in order for us to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, there are certain considerations that we have to make. Uh, in order to do that, they have to be accounted for. You know, we call the, that kind of stuff stewardship. And so, you know, you can, you can obviously set off um, to do ministry if you want to, but if you're going to do it effectively, you can't just set off to accomplish biblical ministry without first counting the cost. Okay? And so that's what cost of the discipleship is all about. You know, I know there was a funny story one time uh, someone had asked if, if they, they had to pay money to do it, you know, and so, you know, but a lot of people are, are not familiar with terminology. And so, you know, just kind of keep that in mind is if someone talks about discipleship and you mention cost of discipleship, just know they may not know what you're talking about exactly. Um, and so just keep that in mind. So we launch off from uh, Luke chapter 14. Verses 26 and 28 we're going to read. It's on, on the screen there. It says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? When we do the cost of discipleship class here at the church, we do it over the course of a six-week period. Um, this is the core foundational scripture that we use to kind of set the stage for what cost of discipleship is. And obviously, as it's mentioned right there, um, you know, in like 28, it says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? That's where the name comes from. And so anytime you're going to do anything in business or anything like that, you're usually going to evaluate what is it going to cost me to do this? Okay? Why would we do discipleship any different? Think about it. We shouldn't. Okay, so I think a more challenging task 
Because it's simple to understand the concept of cost of discipleship, but sometimes it's more challenging to uh, look at what does it mean to utilize, you know, uh, how do you do the uh, utilization of an application of cost of discipleship in the church? Okay, so COD or cost of discipleship, it's not something that you throw at the wall and you just hope that it sticks, okay? Um, it takes strategic planning and preparation in order to make it effective so that we can produce the results that we're all looking to produce, which is to make disciples who make disciples. Uh, and so when you look at what you know, pastoral ministry is all about, you can't separate discipleship from pastoral ministry. Okay, that is the central heartbeat of the local church is biblical discipleship. Um, and too often, I believe, it seems that there are pastors, and in a lot of cases, they've lost sight of what their role is in the church. Um, they come in, they preach a sermon, they leave. You know, and so they don't really invest in individual lives of people, and that's a big job of what the pastors are supposed to do. And so if you're a pastor in the room, I know that there's some in here, we should be asking these questions. What is the main thing that I should be doing? Okay, so I think that when you ask this question, it keeps the focus on what your job really is, and it forces you, um, you know, to put all the other distractions behind it. Now, again, I'll probably say this more than once, but you may not be a pastor in the room. And that's okay, because if you're going to, at some point, disciple someone, you're going to be shepherding people and pastoring them. It may, you may not be a lead pastor or even a, a pastor, you know, part of the pastoral staff, but you still have pastoral responsibilities in your everyday life of leading and shepherding people, okay? So even though I may talk about lead pastors or something like that from time to time, you can apply those principles directly to your life as well. Does that make sense? Okay. Awesome. Okay, so God gave gifts to the church. He gave gifts, um, spiritual gifts, gifts at the moment of your salvation. And so some of those gifts obviously you know, were pertaining to pastoral authority and leadership and so forth. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 12, um, it just says, you know, He gave pastors for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is the main job that pastors are to do is to edify the body, okay, do and tr train people to do the work of the ministry and equip them for the work that lies ahead. Now, um, again, you know, you may not be called, you know, or God may not have called you to be a pastor. You may not have that spiritual gift of pastor teaching and all that. It's okay. Um, you know, you can apply that same thing. Your job is, is also to help equip someone for the work of the ministry as well. Pastors do it in classroom settings or from the pulpit or whatever, and they teach people, they equip people to learn and understand the Bible. And so, you know, there may be many people that lead small groups. They may lead other ministries. You know, they're still pastoring people, um, and they are just as important in training and developing leaders um, of those particular ministries. It's very important that they do that. And so anytime I use the word pastor, just know that it can apply to you in an applicational scenario. Okay, so I think we all understand that leading people is really, it's a big responsibility, okay? And leading people should not be taken lightly. We should not take lightly the leading of people because without cost of discipleship, which is one of the things that I think really helps understand how we should lead other people, 
um, you know, without cost of discipleship, the perfecting of the saints, I think, becomes very difficult to accomplish because we want to be able to utilize the cost of discipleship in our ministries. And so I think that in the heart of every pastor and every church leader is a desire to have a fruitful ministry. I meant, for you pastors in here, who doesn't want to have a fruitful ministry, right? We want to have fruitful ministries, okay? And I'd go as far as to say that if you don't desire this, man, I think something may be wrong in your spiritual life. You know, I can't imagine a pastor not desiring to want to invest their time and energy and effort into people to train them to do what God's called all of us to do. Why would they not want to do that? A lot of them just want to, you know, they want to get a paycheck. It's a job, you know, that kind of thing or whatever. No, this is, this is life for us. At least that's how I view it anyway. And so when we talk about utilizing cost of discipleship this morning, I just want to stress, stress that cost of discipleship would be absolutely pointless if nothing is done to start applying its principles in your church. Okay? But the question becomes, how do we best make that application and how can we best use the cost of discipleship? You know, so the, you know, the biblical command to make disciples is obviously something that we, everyone in this room, should take incredibly seriously. We should be serious about it because, again, we've said it this week, the heartbeat of God is world missions and evangelization of the entire world, okay? The heartbeat of the local church is biblical discipleship. That's the heartbeat of the church. And so that should be the des desire of every single follower of Jesus Christ is to do discipleship and at least from the foundational standpoint to understand what it is. And then we work to, to implement it and utilize it as well. You know, because without it, you know what happens? The church loses ground in our outreach efforts because people haven't counted the cost. It weakens our evangelistic presence in our communities when we don't, you know, utilize cost of discipleship the way that it should be. Um, and so I want you to see this uh, in Judges chapter number 2. I think some of us are familiar with this passage. Starting in verse 8, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gaash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Did, did you catch what happened there? There was a generation that came up that did not know the Lord. We're talking about Joshua, right? You know, Moses trusted Joshua with the ministry. Joshua goes in and they, you know, they just go in there and, and do business. But there arose another generation that did not know the Lord after Joshua had passed. And so for most of us here today, I think it's very possible that we are possibly, could be, in a lot of cases, one generation away from church death. Think about that. That's a big stinking deal, by the way. We need to be discipling other generations. And if we don't understand what cost of discipleship is, we will not teach and train continuing generations as we move forward. 
That's why cost of discipleship is vital to your church. You know, the trained professionals, um, they say, uh, Tom Rayner, if you're familiar with him, he says at least 20 churches close their doors for the last time about every single day of the year. I mean, we're talking, you know, close to 8,000 churches a year are closing their doors for the last time. And the question is, why are they closing their doors for the last time? That's called church death. Why are they closing their doors? Well, I don't think anybody here wants to have a flock with no one following. There's no... There, that's, that's terrible. But I believe that because the, congre the congregation has not counted the cost of what it really means to follow Jesus, they don't really know what that means. And so they think they're following Jesus, but they don't go do evangelism. Because evangelism is, honestly, it's the life of the church. If you're not evangelizing, the church ultimately dies because what happens just because of natural progression of time, of age, people get older and they're, they're going to pass away. If you're not breathing new life into your church, the church is not going to survive. It's vitally important that we understand how to count the cost and that we count the cost and that we figure out how to utilize it in our church so that everyone understands what all of this means. See, our goal this morning is to see if we can understand what it is, like I said, and, uh, and then put together some practical considerations to better apply it in our church so that we can grow the entire congregation to be who God's called them to be. That is our goal this morning. And so I think that really uh, the, it's not really that difficult, you know, to um, apply some of the principles of discipleship in your church or the cost of discipleship. But the deal is, is that it really is a lot of work. It just is. Um, discipleship is tough. You know, you have to be strategic in your efforts, and it does take time to pull off. I mean, it could take years to effectively work through this process. Really quickly, let me just say is that when Joe McKeg showed up at this church as pastor, what, at this point, like, I guess almost 16 years ago, I grew up in this church, okay? When Joe showed up, I didn't like him too much. <laughs> Why? Because he was so much different than anything I had ever experienced from a pastoral perspective. He's saying things that I say, you can't say that from the pulpit. That's mean. That's harsh. And then I, then I opened up this book and I said, oh, dude, God actually says this. <laughs> and then I realized that there's something different about this guy that I didn't, I'd never seen before. You know? And so uh, that, was a, that was a big deal. And it took 14 years before, you know, to get to the point that we were at in 2018, you know. And so, and then, of course, Joe went back to Decatur. And then James, we, you know, unified two churches together and, and all that, you know. And uh, James is here. And I believe that James, he's a different ministerial personality. I believe firmly that he is who is needed to take our church to the next level. Because James is a very applicational ministerial guy. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take what we learn from the Bible and then let's apply it to our lives so that we can go and reach people with the gospel. That's the goal. Okay? It takes time. Okay? So if you have a church and you're, you're working through it, you know, I know, I know what you're thinking. You don't want it to take a long time. You want it to happen immediately. I get it. I've been there. You know, I take this person. I want them to get it immediately. It took me 28 years before I got my eyes opened up. 
And then it was a three-year preparational period, and then they kicked me out of the church and sent me down to Emerson, seven miles down the road with James DeCoker. I didn't want to go, but I did because my pastor asked me to go. I submitted to him. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I thought I knew all the answers, but no, I didn't. And then I learned over the next six years what it means to minister and to apply things, and, and then finally it just clicks. Oh, wow. I need to take what I know, and then I need to help them apply those principles so that we can do the work that we've all been called to do. It's funny how that works. It just takes time, you know, and so, you know, don't get uh, impatient. Obviously, we see a lot of these things play out from Scripture. Um, Israel, they wandered around in the wilderness for how long? Forty years? You know, why'd they do that? I believe it was, should have been about a three-and-a-half-year process somewhere in that neighborhood, but they blew it. How did they blow it? They were, they were unwilling to trust God and the leadership that God had placed over them. They wanted to go back to Egypt where it was easy. Remember what I said a second ago? Discipleship and cost of discipleship, are you counting the cost? It's difficult. It's hard. It's hard work. But a lot of us want to take the easy way out, and we want to go back to Egypt, right? Well, that's what they did. And so obviously you can see this time frame you know, more clearly from a three-year period, three-and-a-half years, something like that, uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with His disciples. And so we see that. Again, the point is it takes time to implement an effective discipleship ministry in your church that will continue for generations. Okay? And it's, especially you lead pastors if you're in here. It takes time. Uh, and I'm sure that some of you probably already know that. And again, I'm not going to say anything you probably don't already know. So, you know, I'm not that smart. Before we can talk about really applying the principles of, of discipleship, you know, I think that we have to um, have a launch pad. We have to have a foundation, obviously, uh, and we've got to establish that. So we do that by asking a few, a few questions. And so the first question that I want us to explore and ask is this. What is cost of discipleship? Okay, well, obviously, we're taking it from Luke 14 there, but cost of discipleship is exactly what it says it is. Cost of discipleship. It's going to cost you something. Okay, and so it's going to cost you something, meaning what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so according to Luke 14, taking an account of your life and circumstances, and then you are determining if you have sufficient to finish the requirements of being a true and dedicated follower of Jesus. That's what it is. But we also need to contextualize our understanding by what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, which obviously means being a disciple. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so the first point there is that as a pastor or a shepherd or anybody pastoring anybody or leading somebody, you've got to be the prime example. Now, for you lead pastors, you have to be the prime example of discipleship in your church. Because most people, let's just be honest, most people that come in off the street or even sometimes from other churches, they have no idea what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. They just don't know. You know, and so... The thing is, is that as a pastor, you have to completely understand what that means. You have to be the prime example in your church because B, discipleship is more 
than an academic exercise. It's hard to be an example if it's just academic, right? It's more than an academic exercise. And I don't think that this comes as any surprise. But it's really easy to get caught up in the deep Bible teaching, the deep things of God, you know, that we want to talk about, right? You know, it's easy because that stuff is very interesting, especially if you're a student of the Bible, you like those deep things and you like to talk about different things that's like, you know, almost like you're getting in the weeds or, or whatever, you know, we like that stuff. Especially as a pastor, you want to talk about it, you know, but it's awesome. I get it. But we forget that it's both and, you know, just like the Great Commission, it's a both and, both, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, and all that, you know, and to the other most, all that stuff. And so it's, it's two things. We, we need to do this. Okay, so what do we do? Well, you teach people, which is academic, right? You teach people the Word. You, you are equipping them with knowledge, and then you have to teach them to do the work. Okay, so that is how you apply the academics that you learn from the Bible. You can't just sit in a classroom and get your head filled with knowledge. We have tendencies to make that happen because we love the Bible. We love Bible study. But I take what I know, you know, and then you chew it up, and then you put it in a form, and then you go and you, you apply it by walking with someone, and you may not even get into all the deep stuff that you understand and know. No, I'm showing them how to follow Jesus simplistically so that I can grow them up like a child so they can become who God's called them to be so that they can accomplish the work that God wants for them. But oftentimes our minds work like this because we really get into some of these things or whatever. We'll say, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Coworker, you know, if you really want some good Bible teaching in our church, you know, I want you to come to church with me and I want you to let our pastor and our team of pastors and our leaders to <coughs> give you the Word of God. That'd be awesome. Now again, we should invite people to church. Don't misunderstand me. We should do that. We should invite people to come. But really what we're saying is, is that, ooh, I don't know anything about the Bible, so therefore I want you to come to church so that our teachers and pastors and all that can teach you. It's my job, or it should be my job and responsibility to get the Word of God to them myself. I should be equipped enough, because I've counted the cost, to say, you know what, let me show you how to understand and read God's Word and follow Jesus. Come to my church to where we can praise and we can worship Him and we can have fellowship with the body and I will help you. You know, now I'm responsible for this because, again, like I said, we all have pastoral responsibilities in this room. All of us. There's a cost involved because that's going to cost you something to go to your coworker and have that conversation with them. It's going to cost you, it could, you know, some fear. Listen, if there's anybody in this room that's afraid of stuff, it's me. You know, I'm just terrified of people, you know, because I'm just an introvert. That's who I am, you know. And so uh, if I can get over it because God enables me to do it, so can you, okay? So, you know, it's okay. It's okay. It's my belief that if we mess up this whole cost of discipleship thing, that we will actually train a generation who won't really know the Lord the way that they should anyway. And do you know what happens? 
when you uh, when you when you you know don't do it the way it's supposed to be, if you just apply academics and all that kind of stuff, whatever, well, that leads us to the next point, because academics alone will create a stagnant discipleship ministry. Because I mean, it's just not enough to fill your head with knowledge of of the Bible and God and all that stuff, or whatever. Because if you don't think that that can happen, if you don't think that ministry can get stagnated, well, again, you can just be reminded of what we read in Judges chapter two, you know. Because in verse 10, it says, And also all that congregation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which He had done for Israel. I mean, they are really removed. They don't even know what happened, you know, at this point. And then they end up serving another God, a false God, another Jesus. You label it any, whatever you want. You know, it, it's, it's not the God of the universe. It's idolatry. And so if we really get honest, <coughs> you know, some of us, you know, maybe in the room, some of us may actually have discipleship ministries that have become stagnated and are not producing the results that we like to see. Listen, you know, because this is my home church, I'll pick on us. You know, I, I believe, you know, having been a product of this church or whatever, after I went and was part of a church plan, I realized that, oh, man, you know, there's more to this thing than just sitting in a classroom. And, you know, and again, it's all good. But I think that over, over the course of time, ministry gets stagnated because you start just doing things and going through the motions of doing them over and over and over again, and it becomes very robotic. It's like an assembly line. You come in on this side, and then you pop out on the other side. You know, and so it's easy for that to take place in your church. And as a pastor, you need to be aware of what's going on, and then we need to continuously be breathing new life into it so that we don't stagnate those ministries. Um, and so, you know, that's, you, you may have that experience in your church. I don't know. Um, I know that that was, that was real for us. And I think that, you know, one, cost of discipleship really helps to, to revitalize your discipleship ministry because now, we're, and we're going to get to this, but we're going to start holding people more accountable for what they're doing. And if you start holding people accountable, then you don't really stagnate ministry. Then you're really finding, looking for the faithful people that are going to follow, and it's easier to identify who those people are. Uh, but we'll, we may talk more about that later. But, um, but you got to know that following Jesus is going to cost everything. And that is why God left us here on the earth after our salvation. That's why you're here. Okay, and so this is the point of what cost of discipleship is all about. And so, um, you know, if you think about the, the day and age that we live in, is, has there been a better time for us to reach out and minister to people in a COVID-19 society? No, it's not. I mean, some of us, we, we've seen people coming off the street saying, hey, my church ain't meeting. So I'm coming here because they're just not doing it. Okay, so we have an opportunity to do something we haven't done before. We even have an opportunity to go reach some people that may not have ever even considered biblical Christianity, ever. There's an opportunity there. And so, um, you know, now that we've looked at some of this, what cost of discipleship is, we need to see it this way as well. What cost of discipleship is not? You know, it, it, it amazes me that we really do like our church programs. I mean, we like church programs, you know, because we like, like I said a second ago, we like to funnel people from point A right through the assembly line out the other end. We like the church, and that's what programs do. Um, 
And so at some point, we've all relied on a program just simply because it's the easiest thing to do at that time. Let's institute this program and automate it so that I don't have to think about it again. You know, and so we, we've done that. You know, there's some people here that like statistics and spreadsheets. I'll be honest, Thomas, he's in here, he knows. I don't do any of those things. You know, track numbers? Like, really? Oh, track numbers? Spreadsheets? No. You know, Greg Wimpy's the king of spreadsheets. You know, he's the executive <laughs> pastor here. You know, side note, he designed a t-shirt on an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> years ago. Believe that? That's crazy. We love Greg. We like picking on him. Um, and so, but if we're really working to shift the culture of our discipleship ministries in the church, we really need to consider doing some things different if we're really going to be effective. Uh, so here's a few quick things that we can consider. Okay, A, cost of discipleship is not just a program to funnel people through. It's just, it's not. But we sometimes view it that way. Well, you can't do this until you do this. Well, no, the, 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 there's a reason why we're doing this, but you just don't funnel people through for the sake of funneling people through a program. Okay, so we should not allow people to go through it just because they signed up. I know that that flies in the face of what a lot of us have believed for a long time. Well, they signed up. What do you mean? You know, okay, well, I'm sure you'll understand here in a moment, but I, I, I just can't stress that enough. If, if we do this, we will most likely kill effective biblical discipleship in our church and continue in the old culture of not producing the results that we're looking for. Because if we quickly run through a program, it is effective for killing growth in the life of a disciple. Look, I'm sure that most of us, you know, especially if you're a pastor or, or church leader and or, or do any teaching, you know that there are some people who actually get satisfaction from completing the course and the classes that the church offers. It's as though they believe that, you know, well, because I've done this, I've arrived into the elite upper class of the church, and now I'm equipped and I'm ready, you know. And I hope that doesn't exist in your church or whatever, but it is a reality that, that happens or whatever. And so, but if, if we work to implement cost of discipleship the way that it is, it, it is intended, we can end or maybe greatly slow down this glaring issue of, of that elite class of just going through a class or whatnot, um, and so, you know, because it's not about completing a program. It's not about just doing the material, just to say that you did. Okay, it's, that's not what cost of discipleship is about or, or discipleship in general. So B, cost of discipleship is not a fix for spiritual, immature disciple makers. Think about that. You got some guy or lady that, you know, that you want to grow and you think, you know what, if I give them a disciple, maybe they'll, they'll put in the time and the work and, and they'll, they'll become more spiritual, mature by doing this. Now, there's some truth to that when it comes to certain areas of ministry. You give people opportunity to continue to grow, but you got to be careful how you do this when it comes to discipleship. Okay, does that make sense? And so, um, it's not a fix for spiritually immature disciple makers. Okay, so if you have someone who is completely sold out to the Lord and they, they desire it, they want to be a true follower of Jesus. You can hurt their growth by pairing them with an immature disciple maker. And I just want to be careful here to say that not everyone, obviously in your church, get this, they're not going to be in the same spiritual place as you, as specifically as a pastor. They may not know as much as you, and that's okay. 
okay? Because it's not necessarily about how much you know. It's about do you have the heart behind what discipleship is so that you have the ability to go get the answers if the disciple actually has some questions, okay? It's more of a heart issue than it is a head issue. Uh, but if they're immature, you just have to be careful. Um, you know, you got to make sure that disciple makers are doing what needs to be done biblically. So that leads us to a question. I like asking questions from time to time. How do we ensure that disciple makers are doing what's required of them? How do you do that? Well, you inspect what you expect. That is exactly what you do. You have to inspect what you expect. You have to check in on them. You have to make sure that they are working to establish the goals in the life of that person. That's the deal. And we all know that we've had people that are being discipled by people who may not need to be discipling. I hate to say that, but it's true. It's just a reality, and it's something that we have to deal with. That's why if I have to deal with it, I just give it to Greg Wimpy and say, dude, you go take care of it, because I don't want that uncomfortable conversation. I'm joking. I'm kidding. I don't do that. Again, we like picking on Greg. Greg's awesome, by the way, because he does a lot of things that I just can't do, and I'm jealous. <laughs> I shouldn't be jealous. I'm just <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. All right. So, you know, when you deal with these circumstances, what we have to understand is we, we, we need to exercise some grace, okay? You know, you just don't want to go in there and blast somebody because we're all trying to grow people up spiritually. That's what we want to do. And if I make the wrong decision, then I can actually do some harm as well, uh, even though I may be right about it, but I got to be careful how I swing my sword, right? Um, and so, you know, but we don't want to compromise biblical truth for the sake of unity. You know, Second John talks about that. You know, we don't want to do that. Uh, just because someone, you know, has a great heart, I'm just not going to allow things that don't need to happen to continue to happen. Okay, you just have to kind of keep that in mind. Okay, so what do I expect? Okay, well, I should expect a certain level of maturity from disciple makers. If you have disciple makers who have not been through cost of discipleship, you may need to consider sending them through it so that they know what the expectation is for when they're discipling someone else. And so if you get to the point where you're discipling someone and you've never actually went through COD, it's just a good exercise to do so that you know what the expectation is. Okay, because listen, when I, when I teach the COD class, I, usually, I try to say, this is what the expectation is for the disciple maker. This is what the expectation is for the disciple. And if you have a disciple maker that's not doing what I'm telling you in this classroom, you need to come have a conversation with me, Greg, Thomas, or James. That's what you need to do because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Don't just endure because you think you should. It's okay. You know, we'll, we'll handle it, but that's just not right. We can't stand for that um, because we need to be effective at what we do. We expect a certain maturity level from disciple makers. Okay, so C, cost of discipleship is not just a box that needs to be checked. This one is also one that you have to deal with in your churches a lot because discipleship, it is a lifelong process and therefore it's not a task just to be completed as a next step. You've got somebody that starts coming to church and they want to start serving in ministry. That's great. That's awesome. 
but you can't let them start leading something if, they, if, they, if they're not trained to do so. It's not like, well, I'm going to run through cause of discipleship so I can check this box so that I can lead this ministry because that's what I want to do. We, you got to be careful with that because someone has a heart to go do something and a lot of us, we, you know, we want to just say, hooray, yes, we got somebody, go do it. You know, how can you show up at a church for two weeks and then they start asking you to teach a Sunday school class? Is that what we should be doing? That happens in this community all the time. And I'm sure it happens in your community where you're at all the time. Because they always, you're always needing people to do ministry. But you got to be careful. We want to train the right people who are faithful. That's what we want to do. Simply checking a box does not make you a disciple. It does not make you a follower of Jesus. Because lost people can check boxes. A person may be a believer... They'll go to heaven when they die, but that doesn't even make them a disciple. That just makes them a born-again believer. So, D, cost of discipleship is not a class where you force people into being discipled. Let me just be honest for a second. I'm guilty of this one. You know, guilty as charged. Some people will show up or even sign up for cost of discipleship because they think that they have to. I've even thought, well, you have to go through discipleship, so therefore you need to do it, and you pressure them, and you continue to harp on them about doing it. They do it, and then they end up just crashing and burning. I know this is a little bit strange, possibly, but I tell my class that my goal is to talk you out of doing discipleship. Because if I can talk you out of doing discipleship, you probably don't need to do it right now. And I'm, you're not going to be mean about it, but listen, when you're ready, we want you to do it. But now may not be the right time for you. What do you mean? We should always want people to be discipled. Yes, we do want people to be discipled. But I don't want to force them to do it. I want them to do it when they're ready to do it. Listen, I, I was saved when I was eight years old. I didn't even consider doing discipleship or doing anything for the Lord for the, until 20 years later. I wasn't ready. No one forced me to do anything. I came to it on my own because of just living life. you got to give people that kind of freedom and flexibility. It's perfectly okay. When they're ready, we're here for you because I love you, but I love you too much not to tell you the truth. Now's not the time. This one's good too, I think, anyway. Forcing spiritual growth will create resentment in the heart. You know, the biblical mandate of discipleship should be important enough to you that you are willing to face the hard truth. You know, you've got to be, again, you've got to be willing to say, no, not now. I'm interested. I'm glad that you're interested. But what we disciple or who we disciple, we disciple the faithful people. That is the people that we pour our lives into. Faithful people. 2 Timothy 2.2. Example, you know, let's just simply start by you faithfully attending church. Let's start there. Every week, 
I want to get you plugged into a small group or a life group or Sunday school, whatever how you say it in your church. That's what we want to do. I want to plug you in to those ministries so you start having some relationships. Let's just start there. And then you need to make some suggestions to them on where they need to go and who they can connect with, you know. And so, okay, so now let's look at some of the practicalities of cost of discipleship. You know, it's kind of like what the cost of discipleship is a little bit, but it's kind of practical, I suppose. So, not, you know, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on, on this, you know, deeply, but uh, cost of discipleship, it is a tool for evaluating potential followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, you know, what, what does that mean? Okay, well, what COD does is that if you allow people to sign up for it and attend the class is that it lets you see who you have that at least has some interest in discipleship, okay? Um, and so even if they don't start discipling immediately after the class, it gives you a conversation starter down the road. I know that you took calls to discipleship or whatnot. You know, what do you think about discipleship? So, you know, now I can have another conversation with them in the future to kind of find out what's going on. And so you can evaluate even some of the potential followers of Christ because life circumstances come, in, come up and some people will tell you why they want to do this, that, or the other. Some people don't. And that's, that's fine. Um, and so, you know, we want to do that because you never know how God is working in the lives of people. You just don't. Um, we don't have a crystal ball. So B, cost of discipleship, it is a tool for evaluating committed um, commitment to the ministry of reconciliation. Now, we, we all talk about a lot, you know, every, minute, every, every member a minister, you know, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, well, that's what 1 Corinthians 2 or 5, 18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, We've all been recruited if you're a born-again believer, obviously. But never assume that a person understands what that means. They don't know what it costs to follow Jesus. They don't know what the ministry of reconciliation is, reconciling the lost world to Jesus Christ. They don't get that. It's an accounting term, so maybe just give them an accounting analogy and they'll probably, oh, that makes sense. You know. Um, so people come from all kinds of different backgrounds. You know, they have all kinds of different definitions of what discipleship actually means. Um, and so we do evaluate the commitment to reconciliation. Okay, are people sharing the gospel? Are people willing to have conversations with people? You know, and so you can do that. Discipleship will reveal a lot of those things, not just cost of discipleship, but discipleship in general. And so, um, but cost of discipleship, see, it is a tool to filter the spiritual from the carnal. You know, we can't forget about Paul's words. 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verses 1, And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye are not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are, not yet, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Look, car carnal people, they have selfish reason reasons for doing what they do. I was the king of carnal back in the day. Um, you know, and selfish people sometimes want class completion credit. Whether they'll admit it or not, they want to do that. Because even as a leader, 
lead pastor, pastoral staff, you know, uh, layperson. Our time is valuable. Your time is valuable. And it needs to be spent with people who want it. So we invest the best hours of our day with the faithful few. If you didn't know this, there's only, there's only a few. You know, I've always walked around the church like this most of the time. You know, I can count the ten people that are actually totally, wholeheartedly sold out for the mission. You know, before COVID, you know, I don't know, we were a church of, you know, 400, something like that. You know, you can walk around like this, you know. But there's not that many people who are seeking God wholeheartedly. And you need to consider that, even in your church. You need to know that. You know, but you got to be careful because you don't want to start saying the wrong things because people, you know, let's just be, let's be real for a second. You, you, you're going to get a little frustrated because people aren't going to do what you want them to do, and there's not that many. You're trying to serve and do stuff or whatever, but you got to meet people where they're at, and you got to help them see what does the Bible have to say, and then you want to bring them along in the process. Instead of, instead of talking down to them or bad about them, why don't you just grab them by the hand and say, hey, come help me do this, you know, and so we have to work at it. Um, and so, anyway, we have to work to lead those carnal people to the point that where they can grow to maturity. We can't just write them off. It's easy to write people off. Well, they don't ever help me, so I'm done totally with you. Now, there are circumstances to where that would be applicable, but you have to gauge their spiritual maturity and where they're at in the process um, before you drop the hammer on them like that. Cost of discipleship must meet God's expectations and not mine. Also guilty. You know, have you ever wanted it so bad for somebody else that you kind of forget God? Anytime we work to accomplish something, it becomes necessary to aim at a target and then do all we can to hit it. We got to do that. You know, we can't just start shooting arrows off everywhere. We got to have a target to aim at. And so, this is, this is big right here. If you miss the mark of targeted discipleship in your church, it's possible, I'd say almost probable, that someone will miss eternity because of our failure to make effective disciples. Think about that. If I fail to make disciples, is it possible that they don't share the gospel with someone and that person spends eternity in hell because of it. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I think it's possible. We've got to have a target to aim at so that we can make effective disciples because it's about God's goals and His expectations. So what are God's goals and expectations for being a follower of Jesus Christ? And so um, we're going to see here in just a moment uh, a few of the marks of a disciple, which is in our COD material. Uh, some of those lessons. But there are a few things that I think is important for pastors to understand, you know, so that we can wrap our minds around, you know, all these things, whatever, when we're implementing COD in our churches. And so, simply put, God's goal and expectation is this. He desires praise and worship. He desires worshipers around the throne giving Him the glory. That's what He wants. Okay, and then He expects us to obey the Word of God wholeheartedly. 
Okay, so in order for us to do that, we, ex we, we, we can expand the kingdom if we obey so that God gets what God wants, which is worshipers around the throne giving Him all the glory that is due His name. That's what we do. And so our vision, you know, at Oakland Heights, you know, most churches have vision statements. Ours is simply just know, grow, and go. Okay, this is what we want to accomplish here at the church. We want people to know God, to learn how to worship and, and have fellowship with God, read their Bible, that kind of stuff or whatever, and come and praise and sing and, you know, come to church and all that. And then we want them to grow in the Word, learn the Bible, so that ultimately they can be mature enough so that they can go and do the work of ministry by planting other churches that plant churches that plant churches. You know, we do the same thing in our lives, be reproducer that reproduces. Churches do the same thing, you know. So that's what we want to do. And so, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're meeting the goals of discipleship. Okay, so I know that the, 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 the Living Faith Fellowship has four goals of discipleship. Well, we just rolled one of, the, one of them up into another one, and so we have three goals. And so our three goals here at Oakland Heights is to establish in the worship of God, in the Word of God, and the work of God. Okay, and so when we do, you know, the, the worship and the Word and all that, you know, we, we do have fellowship and we establish them in the fellowship of the body of Christ and all that stuff, whatever. So we just rolled up the other one in, into those three so that it matches our vision statement a little tighter, you know, because we got to have the three, right? Okay, so let's move on to identifying the marks of, of a disciple. Okay, so the reality in most churches is, you know, um, that we need to understand that many attenders... They don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They think they know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but most of them really don't. They, don't, they have no idea what, what it actually means. And I say this because, you know, um, this question has never really been asked for a lot, even, for a lot, even a lot of us, potentially. Um, you know, what does it really cost to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with my life? That's a great question. And you, everyone in this room, I believe you need to be asking this question for yourself specifically. And then you need to make sure that anybody you talk to that you can ask them that same question so that they can grow as well. So what does it really mean? Well, again, we have that passage in Luke. You know, it has a way of getting people's attention. What do you mean? Jesus said to hate Father, mother, and wife, and children, brethren, and his life and himself? Jesus really did not mean to hate anybody, right? Well, honestly, you should hate the things that God hates, okay? So what does hate mean? Well, it simply means to love less. That's what it means. Obviously, if you want to talk, see the things that God hates, you can check that out in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16. It'll list some things that God hates. But Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39, and I think I forgot a slide there. Sorry. No, I guess I'm lost. That's nice. There we go. That's why they don't give me toys like this. <laughs> Okay, Matthew 10, 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. 
For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and uh, the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Listen, Jesus isn't playing with that, that passage. I mean, it's not happy hour. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. We're Americans in here. You know, most of us anyway, right? Is there anybody here that's not, you know, that doesn't live in this country? We, we, get, we don't experience that in, in the United States, typically, to the level that happens in other countries. Because some of their, when they become a follower of Jesus Christ, their family disown them. Now that happens here too, some, but not to that, not to a level that where you know becomes prevalent, that where that's the precedent here in our country. No, it's not, but it is in other countries. It's a big deal, and Jesus, obviously being God, he knew that, and he he makes this hard statement, and so we should not be freaked out because again, most of the people in the world live not in the United States, you know, and plus the Bible's an Eastern book anyway. So God knows these things. So, you know, we need to get our heads out of the sand as Americans and just realize that there may be instances where you have to have your family disown you to be a follower of Jesus. It's the reality of it. Um, but he's not playing because we need to make disciples who understands that reward is not in this life, but it's in the next. God knows that many families are going to disown their children if they follow Jesus because Jesus, he came to turn the world upside down. That's an upside down thinking. That's what Jesus came to do. It doesn't seem like it makes any sense. But we know that He is the God of the impossible. He makes impossible things possible. He can take care of those people that have those issues. We struggle to wrap our minds around these things, whatever. But here's, here's the thing. I don't even know if this is a note either, but we'll come to that one. But the point of COD, obviously, is that following Jesus is going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. And if this is not understood, by the end of the COD material that you go through in, in, the, in the classroom setting, you've really failed. And you have set yourself up for failure in the church to make biblical disciples specifically just pertaining to the discipleship ministry, I guess. I know it sounds harsh, but it's just way too important not to lay down the facts. It's like, like I said, love you too much not to tell you the truth. Okay, so let's break down a few of these marks of discipleship that's in the COD material. Okay, so uh, A, Mark 1, is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is established in the Word of God. So true disciples understand that their belief in what the Bible says about who Jesus is should also move them to follow Jesus as they continue or abide or stay in His Word. Okay, so obviously many people will make a profession of faith 
but they don't follow the Lord as true disciples of Christ because they have never been established in His Word. Okay. They've never been established in His Word. That's why our vision statement has grow in it. We want to establish people in His Word. And so again, if you look at what Jesus said, John 8, 31, then Jesus said to those Jews which, were, which believed on Him, if you continue in My Word, then ye are My disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, because the Word of God will set you free. It will remove the chains. So if we, under, we understand, I believe, you know, that we've heard this before, that every living thing reproduces after its kind. Okay? But we don't need to forget, we need not forget how it pertains to discipleship because every single individual has a choice as to what they will do. They're, the, they're either going to follow or they're not going to follow. Okay? So we want people to reproduce but someone may choose to do something completely different. So grab your Bible real quick and turn to the book of Ruth. And uh, I want to read through this really quickly. The book of Ruth. Um, you know, I think we're familiar with the story of, of, uh, of Ruth and she is there with, you know, there in Moab and, you know, she marries some Moabites, I guess, and or marries a Moabite, and uh, then they die, and now what's she going to do? That's kind of where we're at. And so in Ruth chapter 1, uh, in verse number 3, it starts this and says, and I'm probably going to butcher this passage, but hey, hang with me. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she, was, and she was left of her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Maelon and Chilion died, both of them, and the women was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return to the country uh, from the country of Moab, for she ha had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people and giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their uh, on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they, left, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, 
Would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them uh, from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Okay, so I want you to see here that this is what cost of discipleship is all about. Think about it when you read, when you read through that passage. It is a time where we ask the would-be disciple, in this case being Ruth, the would-be disciple, for example, we ask the question, go and return to your mother's house. Go back to the world. they got to count the cost. It's gonna, this is not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's easier for you to stay here where you've established your life. You've got to ask them that. Because a follower of Jesus needs to understand that following Christ is not going to be easy. There are difficult days ahead. You know, so this is not something that we should say one time and forget about it after that. This is something that needs to be said over and over and over again. Are you sure you want to follow? Do you want to go back to the world? Because it's, it's got to be their decision. They have to choose it. They have to want it. And if they don't want it, I can't make them have it. My goal, like I said, is to talk somebody out of being a disciple. Naomi is trying to talk Ruth out of following her. Go back. Go away. I think she said it three different times. Go. Leave me. What did Ruth do? We'll find out in a minute what she did. You know, you should get involved only when you're ready and willing to commit to the process because it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a long journey. It's going to be difficult. I don't know what, what, what the conditions are going to be like on the other side or whatever, but we're going anyway. There's bread over there. You know, the person's got to make a choice. Do you want the Bible or not? If you want the Bible, then let's go. If you don't, then go do something different. I know that's harsh, but, but that's, that's reality. Okay? So, you know, but if you look at John chapter 6, Jesus, he had some harsh things to say. Many, therefore, of his disciples, it says in verse 60, when they had heard this, said, this was a hard saying. So Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's what he says. Okay, and it's like, what the world are you talking about, Jesus? And so he says, okay, they're saying, well, who can hear it? And so when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at, uh, at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? It's almost like he's, you know, having some fun with this. You know, what and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore, uh, therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You know, Joe mentioned this last night in the sermon. He, Jesus said something a little, little uncomfortable. It was a little difficult for him or whatever. And he says, do you want to go away? He asked him, do you want to go with the multitudes that are fleeing? It's okay. You can go if you want to. But just like Ruth said, well, Naomi, there's bread in Bethlehem. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm going there. 
You know, that's, that's ultimately what she did. Okay, so you don't, you, we don't need to be shocked that something's a little harsh, you know, when, when you look at what, what Jesus says about things. Okay, so one of, one of my responsibilities, and of course, you know, other pastors have the same responsibility, is to identify who the real players are. That is what we're trying to do, and then we're going to invest our time and energy into them to get them to where God wants them to go. Listen, I don't have time to have the life completely sucked out of me by somebody who really doesn't want to be a true disciple. I, just, I don't have time for that. I love you. I do. But I've got to invest my time with people who want it. Okay? And you should too. The truth about discipleship is this, and I think, I think some of us here understand this, obviously, um, that most can say, most people can probably raise their right hand and say, hello, my name is Demas. Because in 2 Timothy, sorry, I didn't give you the verses there a second ago. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica, Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So many people will start the process of discipleship, but few are actually going to stick it out. You ever started discipleship with someone? You get into lesson three, four, then all of a sudden they just kind of fade away into the background? Because most people are going to turn back at some point. That's just that's the reality. If we can get one in ten that are actually true disciples, I think we've, done, we've accomplished something. That, that's not good results. <laughs> but that's the reality. You disciple ten people, one person's going to buy into it wholeheartedly. If you can change that to two in ten, let's talk after class. You know, because that, that's a big deal. Um, and discipleship is a big deal. But most people will not do or complete the process. If you wanted a, a successful discipleship ministry, you have to lay out the reality of what discipleship looks like. you got to count the cost and understand what the cost is. You're going to work your rear end off, and you're going to think, I'm not seeing very many results. Well, you know what? That's the way it works. Because... Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. I tell my class this, you know, I'm not going to chase you down to get that pairing request form from you. I give you the pairing request form. If you want to be a disciple, fill it out, turn it into me. You can turn it into the office, whatever, but I'm not chasing you down. I probably will not come and ask you about it unless I've had a prior conversation with you before the class or whatever's going on or whatever, and I know what's going on. You know, then I may come and we'll have another conversation. But if you just attend the class and we don't have a conversation, and I'm not going to come back and ask you for that form. If you want it, then you got to turn it in because you just ha I want to fa I want to disciple faithful people. That's the way it works. That's what we do. All right, let's pick it back up in Ruth real quick. Okay, well, let's just skip to the, let's just, uh, let me skip down to verse 16. Um, it says, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following thee, uh, for whether thou goest, I will, this is what she says. Okay, so entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following thee, for whither thou goest, 
I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And she goes on and just talks about where thou diest, I will die, and I will be buried. Okay, that is called commitment. She is buying in. I am going with you. That's what she's going to do. She understood what the stakes were, and she made a choice to change her path when her mother-in-law told her to turn back. That is a true mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Ruth believed that there was life-sustaining bread, the Word of God in Bethlehem, and she said, Lord, I surrender. I give my life to this new life. And by the way, those people are not that difficult to identify because regardless of what gets said, they will continue to say, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, and they'll do whatever they can to be around it and have conversations with people. Those are the people that I'm looking for, and I hope you're looking for them too. Okay, so let's jump through some of this because I'm uh, behind. So obviously 16, uh, Matthew 16, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, so if a person will make this decision, that's something that you can work with because they will rely on God's Word to be their final authority, depend on God's Word to sustain them, and be changed as they live out God's Word. If a would-be disciple of Christ is unwilling to take that first step, you cannot effectively disciple them. I mean, honestly, you know, if we get down to it, we could just stop right there. And that's all you really need to know. But there's some other stuff, too, that's, that's practical as well. So, B, mark number three, and I rolled this one up into two as well, but, uh, or two into three. A disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will follow him unconditionally. Okay, so... We're talking about following unconditionally. Well, what does that mean? Okay, if you look at Luke 14, 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, okay, bear his cross, come after me, you cannot be my disciple. So, Jesus did not come to make your life comfortable. He came to make it uncomfortable. Because again, we have the whole thing on Matthew 10. He did not come to send peace on earth. He came to send a sword. That's why he came. He came to turn the world upside down. And I'm not saying that at any point that you should disrespect your family, but I am saying that you may have to tell them that you can't meet for dinner tonight because the gospel is more important. We can have dinner next week. It's okay. We can skip a week, Mom. It's okay. We'll all survive. Uh, you know, I have a mom too, and sometimes she gets a little, you know, why? what do you mean you, you can't do this? Why? I, that's the way it works. Um, you just have to tell them that. First of all, number one, is that you must make your relationship with Jesus the priority. Jesus, he didn't magnify his family, you know. The family, do you view your family the same way Jesus did? Who's my mother? Who are my brethren? Matthew 12, 14. What about your friends? Are your friends encouraging you or are they hindering you? Secondly, true disciples will eliminate relationships that do not glorify the Lord. You can't disciple someone who is actively pursuing relationships that are in biblical rebellion before the Lord. You just can't do it. There may be times that where they have toxic relationships, they need to end immediately. Okay? That doesn't mean that as you become mature that you can't be around lost people, but you've got to protect yourself in the initial stages until you, until you gain some understanding, some maturity, so that you can go deal with some of the bigger issues. Okay? You've got to grow up. Uh, and so that's important. Um, and so 
again, you know, Luke 14, whosoever does not bear his cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. So you must know that a good leader will never demand their followers to do something that they're not willing to do. You know, are you willing to bear your cross? You got to bear your cross. You know, pastor, church leader, you know, if you're discipling someone, if you're not bearing your cross, you, you know, you can, expect, you can expect your disciple not to bear their cross either. You know, you got to do it. Three, true disciples are willing to carry their own cross. To carry their own cross. Jesus was very clear about what to expect in following Him. You know, Matthew 8, 19, you know, scribe came and said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever goest. And he says, ah, Foxes have holes and birds have the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Uh, and then Mark 13, Take heed unto yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils and synagogues and shall beat you for my sake, for a testimony against them. My goodness, that's going to happen? Really? Well, that's what Jesus says is going to happen. Even Paul understood this, and Peter understood it in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Peter even writes and says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which, uh, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, being partakers of Christ's suffering, that His glory be revealed, that ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Think about that. Don't think it's strange when something gets hard or tough. It's not. Rejoice in it. As a father of Jesus, you need to make sure that you never forget these scriptures. Okay. Number four. True disciples are not deterred by the difficulties of persecution. When ministry gets difficult, believers are tempted to quit following because they think it's too hard happens all the time. And then you got John 16, you know. Jesus says in the world you shall have tribulation. Timothy, Paul says, hath not given us the spirit of fear, you know. Don't be afraid. It's not it's not too difficult that you can't overcome it. Um and so, you know, you got to decide if you decide not to follow Jesus, then um obviously this this stuff is not going to apply to your life at all. You know, I mean, if you want to, you can take your inheritance on this side of Jordan, if you, so to speak, if you want to. You know, we got that story in the Bible, Numbers 32, talks about it. You know, but I want to take my inheritance when I get to heaven. You know, that's where the reward is. You know, but until then, we got to fight until we get there. You know, we got to work. It's going to be difficult. See, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is useful to him. Most Christians have no idea what their actual, what the meaning and purpose of their life is. You know, it's the minister to edify the body, utilize their spiritual giftedness. That's how they are useful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you will refuse, if you refuse to follow the Lord, you have no use to Him. Okay? He wants to use you. So one, true disciples live for Jesus' purposes. To serve and minister. That's, Jesus, that's living for Jesus' purposes. So D, Mark number 6, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will bear fruit for him. You know, the Bible says in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. 
Because number one, a true disciple of Jesus is going to bear fruit by leading others to salvation. I get it. At some point, God is going to, He may remove you from your post if you're not willing to share the gospel with people or to do the work of the ministry. You know, uh, He says in verse 15, uh, chapter 15 of John, verse 2, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh it away. I mean, the good news is if you're sharing the gospel and bearing fruit, then he says that he's going to purge you. He's going to help you bear more fruit. You know, that's what the, verse, uh, the passage talks about there. And in fact, you know, he allows you to be part of this ministry, and that's incredible. He allows you to do it. And so, but if you don't want to bear fruit, then he may just take you out. That's another topic for another day. So, number two, the uh, true disciples will glorify God by bearing fruit in their own life. Okay, so it's important to understand as it relates to having an effective discipleship ministry in your church that there's always external evidence of what's happening, happening within you spiritually, even into the life of the disciple as well. So if you fill yourself up with God's Word, there will be external evidences in your life because the Spirit produces fruit. That's what Galatians talks about, Galatians 5. We know the, we know the passage, you know, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit. Because people can talk a good game, can't they? Yeah, they can, you know, but evidence of no fruit should be concerning to a disciple maker. Look at, at, at Mark there, you know, there's a fig tree in verse 13, afar off having leaves, and he came thinking there might be something on it. There wasn't anything on it. It was just leaves. You see that? The issue is that the fig tree only appeared to have fruit on it. That means that you have to get up close and personal in your discipleship relationship so that you can inspect that thing to see if it's bearing any fruit. Because it may appear to bear fruit, but not. You may think, this person is a rock star Christian, but then you find out when you get close to them and understand what they're doing, they're not doing anything. They just look the part. That happens all the time. E, number seven, the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ loves his people. Let me just give you the blanks here. Number one, the disciple of Jesus loves people more than they love themselves. And the last thing that I want to really talk about here, um, the cause of discipleship, you know, provides solid accountability. And there are some ways that we do this here at, at the church. Because uh, let me give you point A here. You've got to hold the disciple maker accountable. You've got to hold the disciple maker accountable. How do you do that? Get them plugged into ministry. Disciple makers have to show evidence of modeling ministry. Disciple makers must ensure that the disciples are beginning to actively serve and minister. They, got you, they, they have to be doing these things. You have to hold the disciple accountable as well. Hold B, hold the disciple accountable. You know, how, we, how do we hold people accountable? Well, we hold them accountable by tracking the disciple, um, by tracking the attendance in the class. You know, we also do it by, you know, expect the disciples to be obedient to the disciple makers. Simple as that. You also, what we do as well is we try to hold the small groups accountable um, as well, our Sunday school classes. How do we do that? Well, we funnel ongoing outreaches through some of the small groups, get them involved in it. 
We help them understand how to share the gospel and things like that by guest follow-up and whatnot. And those are some of the things that we do. We also need to hold the church accountable. How do we do that? Well, we, we do a giving spotlight every week, you know, or most weeks, to where we share the mission with the church to keep, keep the church in front of the mission of what we're doing. That's what we do. And so those are just a couple things that we do here at the church. But one of the last things is, is why aren't people excited about ministry and serving the Lord? The reason why they're not excited about ministry and serving the Lord is because I believe this way, is that they simply have not counted the cost. That's why. They're not excited about it because they haven't counted the cost. So utilizing cost of discipleship, implementing some of these simple principles, by really it comes down to accountability, honestly. If you hold people accountable, you can utilize and apply those concepts to the body because you're going to be inspecting the ministry in various pockets. Okay, It's vital, vitally important that we do that within our churches. Amen? All right, let me pray real quick, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for this time. God, we love your word. We want to be effective disciple makers, but we got to count the cost. And I think that even if we've been in the game for a while, we still need to count the cost, and we still need to evaluate, and we need to inspect our own lives and our own hearts to make sure that we're doing it the way that you designed it. God, if we're not, I pray that you help us to do that. I pray that you help us to deal with the sin in our lives. I pray that you help us to deal with the, the sin and the circumstances in the lives of the people that we're working with. God, we love you. We just thank you for all that you do, and thank you for your son. In Christ's name, amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.